Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 40th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. We would like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Digital War Room, one of the leading platforms for e-discovery. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is the kindergarten version of information security for lawyers. We're delighted to welcome our friend, Ben Shore. Ben is a technologist and chief executive officer for Roland Shore & Tower, a professional consulting firm headquartered in Flagstaff, Arizona, with offices in Hawaii and Oregon. He is also the author of several books and articles on technology, including The Lawyer's Guide to Microsoft Outlook, The Lawyer's Guide to Microsoft Word, and One Note in One Hour. He's been a Microsoft MVP for more than 15 years and involved with management and technology for more than 20 years. In his free time, he's an Ironman triathlete and a high school football coach. He currently lives in Flagstaff, Arizona with his wife, Carrie. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ben. Thanks, guys. It's great to be back with you. Well, let's start off, Ben, by talking about the fact that there are so many threats to a lawyer's data. What would you call the biggest threat? I'd say the biggest threat to the lawyer's data is the lawyer (laughs) Uh, and his staff or her staff, to be fair. Yeah, most often what we see is users themselves who have done something either foolish or nefarious, as is often foolish than, you know, more often foolish, to be honest, which compromises their data, destroys their data, exposes their data. That's really the biggest threat that we see. So now that you led us down that path there, Ben, how do you protect the lawyer from themselves and and defend against those? (laughs) Well, it's an easy uh, answer, but it's hard to get implemented um, (laughs) because it does require a certain amount of desire and discipline on the part of the attorney to do it. And that is that they really need to do several things. First of all, they need to do a better job of locking down their data against people who don't need to see it. It's amazing to me how many firms I go into where, you know, they're dealing with some very sensitive matters and everybody in their firm has access to every document in their firm. We see you know, firms where the receptionist has access to intellectual property data for cases that she doesn't have any need to, to be able to see. We even see firms that do a really poor job of erecting that theoretical firewall between different practice areas that really should be there in many cases, especially if the firm conducts uh, is subject to HIPAA requirements or, or Sarbanes-Oxley or other compliance issues. But too often, and frankly, it's much as anything, it's just laziness. They don't do a very good job of putting up those virtual walls between the data and the users that make sure that only the people who need to access that data can access that data. That's the first thing. Secondly, we, while you're thinking about who needs to be able to access the data, you should be thinking about what they need to be able to do with that data. Should this user be able to modify that data? Maybe they need to be able to see it, but should they be able to modify it? Should they be able to delete it? There's a lot of different granular permissions that in many cases should be set, but very often aren't, that can protect the data. The next thing I would say would be to uh, not be careless about where you're accessing that data from. 
I can't tell you how often, and, and thankfully it happens a little less often now that we have better extranet technology or remote uh, access technology, but I can't tell you how often, and I'm sure you guys have seen this a, a million times as well, we see attorneys who you know have a critical document they're working on and they want to work on it at home, and they email it to their Yahoo account <laughs> so they can work on it from home. Uh, that's a potential security threat just waiting to happen. We also see a lot of increasing issues with BYOD, people bringing their own devices to the firm where they're accessing those documents on those devices. They lose that device, they've just lost all those documents. And then, of course, there's the issue of the, the, the backside of BYOD, which is TTOD, which is what happens when they take their own device. You know, that person leaves your firm and off they go and they take that iPhone or that uh, Android tablet or whatever it is they've been using that may or may not still have firm data on it. Just the other day, in fact, I met a young woman who uh, is with a new firm and she mentioned to me rather casually that she still has the old emails from her old firm on her iPhone. She was wondering how that happened. But there they were, complete with attachments, which obviously shouldn't be there. So, so really, to sort of sum it up, defending against the lawyer and their own staff really requires them to just take a few minutes, well, maybe more than a few minutes, and give some serious thought to who should be accessing the data, what should they be allowed to do with it, and where should they be allowed to access it from? Should they be able to do it from home? Should they be able to do it from their mobile devices? And if so, what provisions do you have for getting rid of that data when they no longer should have access to it on those devices? But Ben, isn't it, isn't it also true that everything that you just said there, uh, to a large extent, a large number of those things can be accomplished for little or no cost even, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. And almost all of those things, almost all of those kinds of permissions Almost all of those kinds of settings are built into modern file systems, modern document management systems. The capabilities are all there. It's just in most cases, uh, firms have, have not been disciplined enough, I suppose I would say, to implement. Well, you know, we got this complaint letter the other day. As you know, we do IT just like you do IT, and we got a complaint letter from the client. And the complaint was that when we installed his computer, we required him to have a password. <laughs> <laughs> right. To log on. To log on. To log on. He didn't want to have a log on password. Yeah. So I know. <laughs> and, of course, that. you're not surprised. You're not surprised. No, I'm not we, surprised. We see that a lot. <laughs> I find that people's concern for their security and privacy tends to end where the least bit of inconvenience begins. That's exactly right. And if they have to log into something, if they have to, you know, we see it on mobile devices a lot, and so do you, I'm sure, that we tell people all the time, turn on that PIN or that password or that swipe gesture on your mobile device so that when you turn it on, you have to sign into it. And they hate doing that because the slight inconvenience of having to draw some pattern on the screen or type in a four-digit PIN just uh, overwhelms them somehow. It, it does. But it's very it, important. If, it, if that device has any business data on it, uh, then it's, it's important to do that. Well, you know, we've read that Google has said that for the future, and I know we're going to talk about this, that passwords are dead, uh, and I think the three of us all agree on that. But obviously they're not quite dead yet, and we're still going to have them for a while. So what advice do you give lawyers about using passwords? Well, you know, passwords still have a lot of life in them. I think we've all discovered or all realized that they're not the ideal way to secure a system, certainly not in the modern age, but they're still what we have to live with. So the advice I have for, for lawyers is that when it comes to passwords, uh, I, I like actually to use the term passphrases because longer is more important than complex. A five-character totally random password is completely useless. Anybody with some skills or some technology on their side can break a five-character completely random password in minutes or less. So it's more important to have the password be long than complex. The other problem with complex passwords is that people don't remember them. And so what ends up happening is they write it on a Post-it and stick it on their monitor. 
or under their keyboard where nobody ever looks. So, uh, mouse you know, pad. That, that, what's that? Under the mouse pad. Under the mouse pad, yes, right. So we see that a lot. And so, you know, it's, it's far better to pick, you know, a song lyric, a line from a favorite poem, a, a line from a favorite movie. You know, pick some sort of, pick a phrase, a sentence that you can type in that you'll remember. You know, with mixed case, use the spaces. Most systems do let you use the spaces. Not all, but most. And make that password a good, you know, 16-plus characters long. But it's amazing how fast you get to 16 characters when it's four, five, six words long with spaces and punctuation and numbers, preferably. And when you've got that kind of password, you've got a much or pass phrase. It's much more secure that way. But you definitely have to have, at least for now, those passwords, that one factor that systems are all going to respect. Oh, and don't use the same password for every single thing you have. <laughs> but you can't remember them all. That's what we hear. And then we tell them about password managers, and then they go, oh, right. they have them. Right. There's lots of great <laughs> password managers, things like LastPass, or KeepPass, yep. I believe, is another one that's pretty good. I'm, I'm not sure if you guys have one you recommend other than those, but those are good systems. I'm a little bit old school in that I, I, I know that a lot of the password managers will generate a password for you that you don't even actually ever know. You just always use the password manager. I work from so many different devices that for most of the things I do, I kind of like being able to know what the password is. And so uh, for me, I have an encrypted file that I have that I keep my passwords in. I don't use the same password for everything. I do know what my password is. Well, I don't always know what my password is. <laughs> but I can look them up in that encrypted file that you have to have a, a really long True. password yeah, to get into. And you name that file Stuff Not to Forget, right? <laughs> it's named quite cryptically. Yes, it's true. I have I have many times gone to a client site and seen a, a text file on the desktop that said passwords.txt. Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not very subtle. So, Ben, take us a little bit deeper into that and tell our listeners about multi-factor authentication. And maybe before that is kind of describe what that is. Sure. You know, in security, we talk a lot about different factors of authentication. And, and a factor is sort of a, a method of authentication. You might think of it that way. And uh, there's three commonly used factors in authentication, although very rarely do you see anybody using three-factor authentication. In other words, very rarely do you see anybody using all three. And those factors are something you know, which is the traditional passwords, for example, or the PIN number that you use with your ATM card. That number or that password is something you know. So that's one factor. Another factor would be something that you have. So, for example, uh, some companies, especially larger companies, deploy these little keychain dongles that generate a constantly changing PIN code. So when the user logs in, they have to look at that physical dongle, that thing, and type in the PIN code that appears. Uh, we're also seeing now a lot of smartphones, for example, on the Microsoft has an authenticator app. I believe Google has one as well that do the same thing. They generate that constantly changing PIN code. So when you log in, you'd have to look at the authenticator app on your smartphone to get that code. So you have to have the phone or have the dongle. And then the third factor would be something you are. So for example, a fingerprint or a, a retinal scan, you know, you, it's not something you know or something you have, but it's actually a part of your physical body. That's called biometric authentication. Uh, so those are the three kinds of factors that we talk about. And so multi-factor authentication uh, is when you need to use at least two of those factors in order to log in. Perfect example of that would be, uh, for example, my Twitter account. For me to log into my Twitter account, I have to have my passphrase, which is you know, long and uh, you know quite uh, not easy to break, I hope. But also, I have the second factor authentication turned on, and so what happens is that Twitter sends a text message to my phone with a special code that I have to also use to log in. So if I do not have my phone or I do not remember my password, I can't log in. And more to the point, nobody else can either. So even if somebody does figure out my password, unless they've also got my phone, they're not getting in. 
So that's really what multi-factor authentication is about, is raising that bar for a login uh, to make it more difficult for somebody to crack into the system. Uh, if somebody just gets a hold of my phone, they're not going to have the password and so forth. Now, we see a lot of different places where uh, firms are using multi-factor authentication. In addition to uh, really just about all the cloud services now, all the major cloud services allow you to use multi-factor authentication, just as Twitter does. Certainly, Google does, Microsoft, and so forth. And I absolutely recommend that people turn those on. I know it's a little bit of a pain. Believe me, I feel that same pain every time I have to log into it, and it prompts me for my code. But it's worth it to reduce the risk significantly. Another place we see it is we have a client firm in Honolulu, that has actually three-factor authentication on their back office. Uh, You can get into their reception area just fine, of course. Clients can do that. But to get into their back office, you have to swipe your key card, which is something you have. Then you have to type in a little PIN number on the keypad, which is something you know. And then they have to press their thumb on a little pad for a fingerprint authentication. Then the door unlocks. Now, that's obviously, uh, you know, they're pretty security conscious. They deal with some pretty sensitive issues there. But that's a good example of them using three-factor authentication on their door locks to get back into the back area of the office. Well, let's move, Ben, to talk about external threats. And I guess when we use the word external, we're talking about outside the firm, which can also mean inside the country, <laughs> as in the, the NSA. But um, what about external threats? Yeah, the NSA certainly has made me change so many slide decks this year. It's unbelievable. Used to be, you know, we used to tell everybody, make sure your your cloud data is stored in the USA where it's safe from prying eyes. And, you know, yeah, well, so much for that. Anyway, people tend to overestimate external threats and underestimate internal threats, which was my kind of half joke at the beginning about how the lawyer is the biggest threat to their data. But there are still external threats. And I think we can, we can sort of classify very broadly the external threats into, into two general categories, one being the kind that are targeted. In other words, they're looking for you specifically. And the second, which I think is for most lawyers far more common, is the kind where they're just out there fishing for any kind of information they can get, and they don't know you from the plumber down the street, from the dry cleaners downstairs. They're just trying to get whatever they can get from you that might you know, lead to financial gain for them in some way. And so protecting its external threats, to some extent, what we talked about with uh, multi-factor authentication is a good one, making sure that the systems are secured not just with a password, uh, making sure that your passwords are well-chosen and not just one, two, three, four, five, six, or password or open sesame. You know, those kinds of passwords are, are not going to protect you against internal or external threats. But also there's some other things you should be doing to lock your network down, for example. Pretty much all of us at this point, with only one exception I can think of, have internet connectivity in our firms. And if you've got internet connectivity in your firm, that's a potential vector. In fact, it's a pretty common vector for attack. So you should have a good firewall on that connection. I recommend using a firewall appliance as opposed to a software firewall. And the details of, you know, the specifics of that may be a little beyond our kindergarten podcast. But needless to say, I'm recommending having a separate box that does your firewalling as opposed to a program you install on your computer. The combination of both would be nice too. But good firewalls are important. Uh, Also making sure that your firewalls and your systems are properly patched. There are updates being released all the time, security updates and stability updates and bug fixes for your operating systems, for your productivity software, Microsoft, Adobe, Apple, all these companies are releasing updates on a very regular schedule to fix problems and close possible holes. And it's really important to make sure that you've got those uh, patches installed and you're up to date with them. Too often we see vulnerabilities where people are being attacked and it turns out that the vulnerability was attacking or the attack was against something that had actually been patched months earlier, but nobody had ever bothered to apply the patch. 
So I think it's important to keep up with your patches. Also true with your anti-malware software. Whatever your anti-malware happens to be, there's a number of pretty good ones out there. Kaspersky has one. Microsoft makes their own. There's 20 different vendors for antivirus software. None of them catch everything, but if you don't keep them up to date, they're not likely to catch anything. So it's uh, really important while you're patching your systems to also make sure your antivirus software is being updated. And then finally, the other thing I'd suggest to protect against external threats would be uh, encryption. Too often we see portable devices go out the door, whether they're laptops, USB drives, external hard drives, where they've just not bothered to encrypt the device. And then that device gets lost or stolen, and suddenly you've got all this potentially uh, damaging client data out there in the hands of somebody, and it's not protected. I know you guys get a lot of the same alerts I do. I don't think a week goes by that I don't hear about some insurance company or hospital or government agency that lost a laptop with 300,000 patient records on it and turns out, oops, we forgot to encrypt it. That's a pretty big mistake to make. And encryption, just like passwords, is, uh, doesn't have to be expensive. In fact, in many cases, it's free. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, the Digital War Room Platform for e-discovery. Don't be caught unprepared for e-discovery. Digital War Room e-discovery software allows you to search, review, mark, and produce responsive email and documents. Powerful enough for your biggest cases, but easy enough for first-time e-discovery attorneys. Geeks need not apply. Digital War Room has a solution for every client, every case, and every budget. Visit www.digitalwarroom.com for a free trial and see how easy e-discovery can be. Make your next case your best case with Digital War Room. Welcome back to the Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today we're talking about the kindergarten version of information security for lawyers with Ben Shore, who is a nationally recognized expert on information technology and information security. Ben, I know you referenced malware a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? And I'm especially interested in ransomware, which has struck a lot of lawyers recently. Yeah, sure. We're seeing a an interesting explosion in ransomware, which I think is probably going to be the new normal. And basically, for those who don't know, ransomware is a piece of malware that gets on your machine. It, just like regular traditional malware, it can get on your machine from a variety of sources, whether it's you know, web or uh, email or, or other ways. Uh, but once it's on your machine, what it does is it encrypts your files in such a way that you can no longer access them, and then it asks you to pay them a, a ransom, just like what the name sounds. And so you you get prompted to send them some sum of money, at which point they will provide you the keys to unlock your own data. And we are seeing quite a lot of that these days. It's a very disturbing trend. And so the solution to it, other than what we talked about earlier about making sure that you're patched and that your antivirus is up to date, is to make sure you have good backups of your data. Because if, for some reason, you don't get your data back, because of a variety of reasons, you're going to need to be able to restore it from backup. So you've got to make sure those backups are good. A lot of firms are moving towards the cloud, and I know you and I have spoken many, many times on this very subject, but what's your current feeling? Is the cloud secure? I think the cloud can be secure. A lot of whether the cloud's secure or not depends on, A, what you're putting in the cloud, and B, how you're putting it in the cloud. Well, and I suppose, C, whose cloud you're putting it in can be another issue, too. And so just to sort of you know, keep it at a very basic level, I always recommend that before you put any kind of data in the cloud, that you, you know, give a little thought to what it is that you're putting there. 
you know, putting your email in the cloud may not be a big deal. Chances are your email used the cloud to get to you to begin with. Putting your financial system in the cloud is, you know, potentially a much larger deal. So, you know, I'd say give some, some critical thought to exactly what it is you're putting in the cloud. If you're an intellectual property firm, you probably have a few more concerns about storing potentially confidential material on a cloud server that may be hosted in China. There's a lot of you know, issues there, potentially. The second thing is how you put it in the cloud. Most of the systems that let you upload files, or many of the systems that let you upload files, will let you upload encrypted versions of those files. So you know, give that some thought. It may be worth investing in the time to set it up so that what you actually put in the cloud is an encrypted version of the file and not a regular version of the file, for lack of an easier term. Yeah, that's particularly true with Dropbox, which seems, for some reason, all the lawyers have glommed onto that. Yes, well, that comes back to my security, you know, concern for security ends where there's inconvenience. Dropbox is a beautifully engineered product. It does exactly what you think it's going to do uh, and some things you don't think it's going to do. And, you know, to that extent, it's a very appealing product. Unfortunately, there are also some rather serious potential security problems with it. And that come, brings me to that third point about who you put the data in the cloud with. My concerns with Dropbox is that they say that your data is encrypted when it's on their service, but they have the encryption keys, which means that if they want to decrypt it for any reason, they can. I don't care for that at all, actually, at least not for sensitive data. There are other services like Spider Oak, for example, that has a similar service to Dropbox, but their encryption, they do not have the keys, which means that if you you know, lose access to your files, they can't decrypt them for you. Yep. But I like that. It also means that law enforcement, the only thing it can get from them is garbage because you've encrypted it. Exactly. Before it, it, they can get garbage, but that's all they can get. And still, unless the NSA breaks more encryption schemes than it currently has. Exactly right. Yeah. As a general rule, or just a general guideline for attorneys, I would say be extremely suspect of what I would call consumer-grade services for storing your data in the cloud. If it's, you know, Dropbox, for example, is generally aimed at consumers. I would be looking more at services that are geared towards businesses and that understand businesses' concerns with privacy and security. That doesn't guarantee it's going to be a secure service, but generally speaking, it's a good starting point that if it's a consumer-oriented service, I'm probably less inclined to want to put any sensitive data in it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Ben. And let us have your quick version of what you recommend for, we're all mobile lawyers these days, uh, how do we be mobile safely? Well, some of what we already talked about, make sure you've got your uh, passwords enabled on your mobile devices. Be very, very careful about using public Wi-Fi. I know John's done some demos on these things at Tech Show. If you're connecting to public Wi-Fi, you're pretty much, you know, out there surfing with your pants down. <laughs> and so, you know, make sure that, uh, you know, if you're just checking on the Dodgers score, it's probably okay. But if you're planning to do anything at all confidential or secure, where security be necessary, uh, you really don't want to use unencrypted public Wi-Fi for that. That would be another thing. If you've got flash drives and things that you're taking, make sure they're encrypted. All right, Ben. So the very last one, your parting shot here. Any other security mistakes? that you're seeing lawyers making? Well, I tell you that there's one that they've been making for 20 years that still makes me cringe, and it surprises me how often I still see it, and that's uh, sharing their passwords with their assistants. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how often I'm in some attorney's office, and I see you know, one of the other attorneys coming out, you know, leaving for the day, and they say, hey, I'm heading off on my trip, Susan, and uh, here's my password. Check my email while I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just want to strangle them. <laughs> because, first of all, there's a lot better ways to have your assistant check your email if you need them to. But secondly, I always think, wait a minute, when's the last time you changed that password? 
How many assistants have you had since you changed that password? I mean, how many potential former assistants are out there floating around who know your password? Uh, any of them working for opposing counsel now? You know, I, I don't know. Any, any password that's been compromised, and that includes being shared with your assistant, no matter how trustworthy or wonderful he or she might be, it needs to be changed. You just can't do it. Because when they've got your password, as far as the computer is concerned, they're you. Uh, and that's uh, not cool. So, so why, why not just give them the pin to your debit card? Yeah, true. <laughs> they should. Or give it to me. I'll take care of it for them. That's a big one for me. Is, is just I guess that plays into the whole message from the very beginning of the cast, which was just we tend to be our own worst enemies when it comes to security, and some of that is by taking too casual an attitude towards it. You know, we, we all think we have too much security until we find out we have too little. Ben, thanks so much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to talk to somebody else who gets as aggravated with their clients as we do. <laughs> and you, you, passed, you passed along a really uh, a whole bunch of great tips and, and some stories, and it was a lot of fun. So thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jim. That does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and security services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.